Wonderful. Well, only a friend could use an analogy of Where's Wally to produce Where's Bernice. <laughs> it is so good, though, and I do want to encourage you ladies to <laughs> dive on... What's that? I know she's here. I know she's here. She's even got a red top on. I don't know whether she knew the analogy was coming. or. I do want to encourage you ladies to dive in on that. There's loads of different time slots you can go to, but just what a neat opportunity to be able to be in God's Word and to do it with friends as well. It's so much more fun often running together than it is sometimes running by ourselves. Well, let's turn in our Bibles, please, to 1 Peter chapter 4. As I said last week, quoting J.I. Packer, there is no truer or happier way to describe Scripture than as God preaching to us. This is the moment where God addresses us himself as we read his word. And so if you're making notes, I've called this message, Jesus is coming soon. And although we're going to focus ourselves into verse 7 through 9, we are actually going to read all the way from verses 7 through 11 so we can enjoy the context together. This is the word of the Lord. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God, Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We do thank you that when we hear your word read to us, it is the moment where you yourself are preaching to us. Well, Lord, as we delve deeper into this word now, as we dive deeper into your words, Lord, would you give us grace? Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes to behold the glorious wonders of this word? And would our lives be encouraged and provoked and changed as a result? Would it all be for your glory? But to you belong all things and all dominion forever and ever. Amen. You know, this past Monday morning, Emma and I were driving along. I always take Mondays off. It's our day off in the week. And so we were driving along to Balmoral when we had a call from our daughter, Lydia, who was clearly upset on the call. And she was letting us know that a friend and fellow Year 11 student, Adrian Hen, had tragically and unexpectedly passed away the night before. This young boy had passed away. And at that point, his cause of death was unknown and as you're hearing this intel driving along it's just one of those moments as I'm sure you can understand that takes your breath away somewhat. I remember another moment like it some 12 years earlier when I had a call from my friend Pete Greasley who's the pastor at the church that I was a part of in the UK and to let me know that my friend Dan Gavetta who's another pastor in the church had gone out one evening He was going to the gym, so he kissed his wife goodbye. They're four small children. He was only going to the gym. He'd be back in an hour. But at the gym, he had been taken ill. He fell over. He collapsed. He was sick, and then he went completely unconscious. And what had actually happened over time, we grow to realize, is that unconsciousness was something he would never recover from. 
He had a brain aneurysm. He was 33 years old. And he died. He never came home. They never got to speak to him again. And I think it's moments like these where you become painfully aware and importantly aware of how fragile and finite life really is, isn't it? It's so much more finite and fragile than we often care to think. We can act and behave as if we've got all the time in the world. We'll address that next year or the year after that or the year after that, but maybe you don't have next year. Maybe you don't have next month. You see, for all of us, when the time comes that our eyes close in death, we can't control that. And for all of us in the room, you never know when your time might be up. And likewise, you never know when Jesus might come back, which also means your time is up. See, in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 2 to 3, we read, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. The whole premise is you never know when the time might come, when your life might come to an end, because Jesus is coming back. And when he comes, he'll come like a thief in the night. Revelation 16, verse 15, we read, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Jesus is coming back, my friends, and he is coming back like a thief in the night. And what Peter is telling us here right at the start of verse 7 is the end of all things is at hand. Jesus has died He is risen again. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. The next thing in this list is that Jesus is coming back. And he wants us to understand that Jesus is coming soon. You and I are now living in the final stages of human history. He has died. He has risen again. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. Jesus is coming soon soon. David Helm says it this way. He says, according to the Bible, the end has already begun. It came with Christ's resurrection and will be fully consummated upon his return. Therefore, we are on the final stages of history. We are living in the last days. As Peter argued in his opening chapter, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. Listen, indeed, the end is at hand. Brothers and sisters, you don't know when you might go be with Jesus, and you don't know when he may return, but what we do know is Jesus is coming soon. And as Peter pens these words to us here in verses 7 through 11, he wants us to be ready for that important moment. He's trying to prepare us for the reality that Jesus is coming soon. The end of all things is at hand. And so he gives us four things that he wants us to embrace and imbibe as Christians. Four things that he wants us to live with now in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back soon. Four things that he wants us to be doing in our lives and modeling in our lives, understanding our time may well be short. And so this morning we're going to be looking at three of those things. And then in a couple of weeks' time when Brendan carries on with the text, he's going to be looking at the final one. I was greedy. I took the first three. 
But I really come to this text, although we're looking at three points, with really just one hope. And it's that we would all be living our lives ever increasingly ready for his return. That for each and every one of us, knowing that you don't know how long you've got, that we would be ready and living for his great return. For the end of all things is at hand. So how do we live in response? Well, three things. Here's the first. Number one, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Look at verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. See, what Peter is talking about here is, about, is in a nutshell, the importance of being clear-headed. This expression, to be self-controlled and sober-minded, put together, it means to be clear-headed, and in particular what he's talking about is the importance of being clear-headed in the decisions and choices we make, even when the squeeze of life is on. Even when the pressure comes your way, which it will and it does, usually on a weekly level. He's saying when it comes to you on a weekly level, when the squeeze is on in your life, I want you to be clear-headed so that you can make wise choices and decisions for the glory of God. You see, for these original readers, the squeeze was indeed on. They were being persecuted. They were being slandered. They were being maligned by those around them. The pressure was on in their lives. The temptations that would have no doubt come their way to wonder, how long is this going to last? Should we just cave in? Should we just be like them? Because we need to like work and eat. The squeeze was on in their life. And so what an encouragement it would have been to them to just pause and take stock and be told, listen, just stop and then whatever you do, be clear-headed. Think wisely, think maturely, do things for the glory of God, even in the midst of the pressure of your life. How helpful it would have been then to hear that instruction. But not all squeeze in our lives comes through persecution and maligning and slander, does it? Maybe you are experiencing persecution and slander and maligning. Maybe that is the squeeze of your life. But I want to encourage you, whatever the squeeze may be, it could be suffering, it could be trial, it could be sickness, it could be difficult. Whatever it is, that squeeze comes and we need to be clear-minded, able to make quick decisions and good decisions for the glory of the Lord. And in the same way, I think one of the squeezes that can so quickly come to our lives, particularly here in the West, is the squeeze of busyness and sheer fullness of life. Is anybody amongst us not experiencing that? Would anybody amongst us say, I've just got so much time, all day, every day, all week. I don't know what to do with it. Never. The squeeze in the West comes through busyness and pace and fullness that is being risen into our lives in a way that often you hear it at a gospel community level, I'm being squeezed. I don't know what to do. Or worse, you've already made the wrong decisions and now you're suffering the effects because you're overwhelmed. You know, I've been reading a book 
recently on this topic because I've been studying it for myself. How do you be a director of global missions when it's talking about the globe and not experience some level of squeeze? Where do you start? How do you do this in a way that honors the Lord and is manageable for the glory of the Lord? And the book that I've been reading is Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less by a man called Greg McKeown. And it's changed my life, basically. It is a wonderful book. It's written by a non-believer, but it has been a wonderful gift of grace to me. And one of the things he does in this book is he outlines for us why here in the West we are so squeezed all the time. How is this happening in our lives that we are constantly always squeezed by busyness and fullness of life? And he, he says it's three things. Firstly, he says, you know what, part of the reason here in the West is we have too many choices. He outlines how in the last 20 years, the the increase in choices has been exponential. As we become more wealthy, as technology has sort of linked us all together, as we become more global, understanding I could go anywhere in the world and do anything in the world, the choices have increased dramatically as what they were even 20 or 30 years ago. And he explains that it's so easy then when choices increase to lose sight of the good choices. Peter Drucker, in his book Managing Knowledge Means Managing Oneself, writes about it this way. He says, In a few hundred years, when the history of our time will be written for a long-term perspective, it is likely that the most important event historians will see is not technology, not the internet, and not e-commerce, but an unprecedented change in the human condition. For the first time, literally, substantial and rapidly growing numbers of people have choices. For the first time, they will have to manage themselves if ever-growing options, listen, and society is totally unprepared for it. I think he's right. We live in a time and in a generation where there is choices being thrown at us again and again and again. Society is totally unprepared for it. And guess what happens? Decision fatigue sets in. We just get exhausted. And so what do we do? We decide, I'm going to move away. I'm going to move away to a quiet little place. But what happens? We take ourselves with us. And so it's still the same decisions. There's still loads of decisions going on. And we get tired. We start to make bad decisions that we then suffer the consequences of. So part of the reason, he says, why we're squeezed in the West with our busyness is because of the sheer amount of choices we have to make all the time. He then adds to that, number two, the reality of social pressure. So not just the amount of choices that we have to make, but the reality of how interconnected we now are. So we scroll through Facebook and Instagram, and everybody else is doing so many things. And they all want to give us counsel. Everybody wants to give a counsel. Everybody's a counselor now. In his book, he, Greg McKeown says this. He said, It is not just the number of choices that is increased exponentially. It is also the strength and number of outside influences on our decisions that is increased. While much has been said and written about how hyper-connected we now are and how distracting this information overload can be, The larger issue is how our connectedness has increased the strength of social pressure. Today, technology has lowered the barrier of others to share their opinion about what we should be focusing on. So it is not just information overload we deal with today, but opinion overload. How true that is! 
So it's not just the amount of choices we make. Now we have hundreds of voices, hundreds of voices giving us counsel into our lives. This is what you need. This is what you need to buy. This is what you need to do. If you really love your children, these are the thousand things you need to do for them. So we have hundreds of choices, hundreds of opinions. And then he says this, the third reason why we can be so squeezed by busyness and fullness of life is because we imbibe the idea that you can have it all. He talks in the book about this idea that you can have it all and do it all. You know, it's not a new idea. He talks about it, though, nonetheless, that it is a myth. He's an unbeliever, but he understands that we are finite people. We can only be in one place at once. We've only got limited time, limited ability. And yet we live in a time and a cultural moment where people are being taught and infected with this myth as if, I can have it all. I'm just going to do it all. So thousands of choices with thousands of opinions. I'm going to do them all. It's a myth. This is what he says. He says, though the idea that we can have it all and do it all is not new, what is new is how especially damaging this myth is today. In a time when choice and expectations have increased exponentially, it results, listen, in stressed people trying to cram yet more activities into their already overscheduled lives. It creates corporate environments that talk about work-life balance, but still expect their employees to be on their smartphones 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And it leads to staff meetings where as many as top t- as 10 top priorities are discussed with no sense of irony at all. Is this not true? Is this not the generation and the culture that we live in to this day? You know, the word priority was created in the English language in the 1400s. For 500 long years, the word priority was only in the singular form. It was understood for 500 years that you could only have one priority, one thing that as for me, this is what I've given my life to. In the 1900s, some bright sport said, let's have two. So for the first time in human history, it was pluralized. So you now had priorities. And all through the 1900s, those priorities went from two to three to four to five to ten to twenty. Now you can have hundreds of the things, hundreds of priorities. And we imbibe that in a sec, that with no irony at all, when in reality we're finite individuals. And this is a myth that you can do it all and have it all. It is not true. You have to make decisions. So you put all these things together loads of choices with loads of opinions and infected with the myth that I can just do it all. And the fruit is we feel stressed and overwhelmed. And so I thank God for this verse where he tells us the end of all things is at hand. Listen, Jesus is coming soon. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. What he's saying is, listen, don't take the hookmate of society. It will squeeze you. It will pull you in. Therefore, be clear-headed. Make sure in your decision-making it's being used for the glory of God that you're only doing things that in light of eternity are really going to matter because he's coming soon. 
Brothers and sisters, as I read this this week, I thought, I have not come across a more important word for our time right now here in Sydney. And I would include our church in that. Jesus is coming soon. We must, in the many choices and decisions we make, stand firm and be clear-headed. Is this a wise decision in light of eternity? Because he's coming soon. Will it make much difference in light of the millennia after millennia to come? Brothers and sisters, we all get squeezed by things at different times, and so we must be self-controlled and we must be sober-minded. And as he tells us there, we must do this for the sake of our prayers. You know, he's not literally saying that, listen, if you're not clear-headed, he's not going to answer your prayers. That's not his point right here. Now, what he's saying is this. When you're not clear-headed and you're running around all the time like a fly, guess what's the first thing to go? We stop praying. I'm too busy to pray. I've just got too much going on. Exactly. So be clear-headed and sober-minded. Because it's only then you'll steady yourself and realize, I need Jesus more than anything. Lord, I need to be with you. Would you help me through the day? So for the sake of your prayers, and for the sake of who you are, be sober-minded and self-controlled. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. But that's not all. Number two, for the end of all things is at hand. So number two, verse eight, love one another earnestly love one another so what he says in verse 8 above all keep living one, loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins two things then that we are to notice from the text about this love for one another that it's vital to notice first of all this love for one another there must be earnest Our love is to be real, it is to be sincere, it is to be genuine, it is to be deep, it is to be overflowing. Listen, take a look around. He's not talking about a love for the world there. Take a look around. He's talking about the people in this room, your local church. Make sure that your love for those sitting in the seats next to you is genuine, is real, is sincere, is earnest. And do it, he tells us, above all. Whenever we read the words above all in the Bible, we must pay attention because the writer is using language of priority. Above all, make this a passion and priority of your life. Love those in the room earnestly, deeply, sincerely, for the glory of the Lord. Quite clearly to Peter, loving one another is not an optional extra. It is to be a passion and priority of our very lives. See, love in the local church is so vitally important. In 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to 3, this is what Paul says about love. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all that I have and deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain 
nothing. He's saying, listen, I don't care how you are with each other. If you lend each other your cards, it doesn't really matter. If you go and hang out now and again, it doesn't really matter. If you don't love them, you're like a symbol in the background going, bang, 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 bang. It's not very pleasant. You got nothing if you don't earnestly love one another. Love is so vitally important in the life of the church. and should be our theme. John in 1 John 3.16 says, So this is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. He's saying, listen, this is what should motivate us to love one another. It's the glories of what Christ has done for you. Because he in his grace gave his life away for you out of love, you're called now to emulate him and be fueled by his example to also lay your lives down for those brothers and sisters around you, to truly love them earnestly, all for the glory of God. And so it shouldn't surprise us to note that Peter has mentioned this at least four times already in this letter. He exhorts us to love in chapter 1, verse 22. Does the same in chapter 2, verse 17. Exactly the same then in chapter 3, verse 8. And lo and behold, chapter 4, verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. It's added again. He wants to remind us again. You must love one another. And in the back end of verse 8, he gives us a, a reason as to why this is so important. He says, since love covers, it covers a multitude of sin. See, here's the working assumption that Peter is working on there. The working assumption is that when you join a local church, you and I, well, we will be sinned against at different times. That's the working assumption. You're going to be on the end of people's weaknesses, people's idiosyncrasies, and at times you will be on the end of their sin. If you're visiting this morning, welcome to Sovereign Grace Church. Um, It's a very pleasant church. We'd love you to join. We will probably sin against you. I mean, this is the way it's written here. It's just being real. He's just being super honest about church life. The reality is you will at times be sinned against even by those you love around you. The harsh yet true reality is there will be times when people will sin against you. And church, you must soberly realize that in your mind. Otherwise, when it occurs, you will be left within a week finding another church that is what? Sinless? We must be aware there will be times when people will sin against us. There will be an insincere word spoken against us. There will be an unkind remark. Or we might just be on the end of their weakness. But here's the sober reality. They'll be on the end of your sin sometimes too. Look around. You'll probably sin against them. You'll say something angrily to them at some point. You'll say something that was like, at some point in your life. What grace do you want to be shown? Because we would do well to show that to others as well. There will be times, given the harsh reality of sin, that people will sin against us and we will sin against them. But the glorious yet truthful reality that Peter is drawing our attention to here is that love covers a multitude of sins. When you truly love those around you and you feel it passionately and deeply, it covers a multitude of sins. One commentator says, love takes the oxygen out of sin the way a blanket chokes the air from a fire. 
I love that. When you truly love somebody, when you really have great affection for somebody, love covers that sin, choking the sin like a fire blanket goes over a fire, choking it from oxygen. It doesn't inflame anything. There's no division that comes at the end. There's no grand leaving. It just covers it. Motivated by, I really love you. You see, what Peter is talking about here, he's not saying that we should just condone or ignore or tolerate sin. That's not what he's talking about. There is a time, given the seriousness of sin and given the pattern of sin, to follow what Jesus is saying in Matthew 18. To actually go to your brother or sister in love and say, listen, uh, you've sinned against me and it's wrong, it's hurtful, and I need to talk to you about it. And if they won't listen, you take somebody else with you, and if they still won't listen, then church discipline is an option. There is a time when there are patterns of sin or seriousness of sin, but we want to go to somebody in love because we love them. The whole premise being, I want to try and win you. There's also times when in our lives people are walking around with cream cheese on their face, you know. There's a sin going on that is blindingly obvious and yet no one wants to tell them. You know, that's unfaithful. There's a time when we know to need to go to somebody, particularly when it's a pattern, and say, hey, listen, I don't think you're aware of it, but are you aware you keep, you keep saying this or you keep doing this? And I want to love you enough to have this awkward conversation because I want to try and win you. And I don't think you're aware of it. Peter's not saying we shouldn't go to people in love and seek to conduct, keep to show them their sin for the glory of God. But what he is saying is that for all of us in the church, we should be eager and quick to forbear with people in their sin and to forgive them in their sin. Why? Well, because love covers a multitude of sin. Love understands, hey, listen, we're not perfect. I think that we live in a time and a generation that is more sensitive and triggered than anyone in history. And I think we need to realize that oversensitivity isn't helpful. We need to be leaning in, quick to forbear, quick to forgive. How do you do that? How, what motivates that? How do you actually position your heart in a way that you can actually do that? Well, here's how you do it. Above all, you keep loving them earnestly that I'm going to choose to love you and go after you. Because when we feel that, it starts covering a multitude of sins. Given that we are in the last days, the end of all things is at hand, we must, by the grace of God, be self-controlled and sober-minded. We must keep loving one another earnestly. And then finally, number three, we need to show hospitality. Hospitality. Verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality then that he is talking to about here, he's talking about it being to one another. So he's talking about the local church embracing one another and using hospitality for the glory of God. And what he's talking about very specifically is lovingly and warmly having others into our homes. Given the reality that God in His grace has given us the gift of a home, whether it be a house or a dorm or an apartment, He's exhorting us to ensure that we don't use that gift to isolate ourselves so we can just be me. No, open the doors so that others can come in. So that others can experience the grace of God through you and through your house because that's why He's given you it. To be used 
for his glory. You know, one of the things that struck me in an almost amusing way as I read this text this week is how quickly we go from the sublime heights of verse 7 to the mundane reality of verse 9. The sublime heights of verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. You think, oh, this is major. This is major. Verse 9, so let people to come to your house. You just think it sounds ridiculous. But what we're actually learning in this moment is how ridiculously important hospitality is to Jesus. How ridiculously important to our living and breathing Father the gift of hospitality is that we would be a people that would open up our homes to one another for the glory of God. And listen, if you are too busy for hospitality as a Christian, then the thing I think you must wrestle with is if you are too busy, then are you too busy with God's priorities or merely just your own? Because right here, we're learning the priorities of God in light of the reality that the end of all things is at hand. And hospitality, he says, well, that's vital. It's in the top three of things we need to be doing for his glory and by his grace. It's something that the Apostle Paul talks about likewise in Romans 12. In Romans 12, he's talking about the importance of being stewards of God's grace, stewards of God's gift to us. And in verses 12 and 13, he says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. He's saying in light of all that the Lord has blessed on you, all that he's done for you, listen, use your funds to give to the needs of the saints, give them to the local church so that the church may be built up and they may be care for the one another's and care for people beyond their walls. And secondarily, open your homes to one another in a loving and warm way. That's how important it is. And so Peter echoes the same thing here in verse 9, exhorting us to the same thing, show hospitality to one another. Church, it is so important. Alexander Strauch, in his wonderful book, The Hospitality Commends, writes about hospitality this way. I don't think most Christians today understand how essential hospitality is to fanning the flames of love and strengthening the Christian family. Hospitality fleshes out love in a uniquely personal and sacrificial way. Through the ministry of hospitality, we share our most prized possessions. We share our home, finances, food, privacy, and time. Indeed, we share our very lives. So hospitality is always costly. Yet through the ministry of hospitality, we provide friendship, acceptance, fellowship, comfort, refreshment, and love in one of the richest and deepest ways possible for humans to understand. Oh, how well said that is. Through the ministry of hospitality, we provide friendship, acceptance, fellowship, comfort, refreshment, and love in one of the richest and deep ways possible for humans, note, one another to understand, to have people into your home. You know, I remember forever and I, we were taught a wonderful lesson in this in the year 2000 when we moved from the United Kingdom to America to go to the pastor's college. 
We had been married four months. Emma was 20 years old. I was 24. We were very young. Emma was still attractive. I was really ugly, but I've improved over age. Anyway, <laughs> we went over to the States, and we got there. We were clueless, married four months, and we moved in with a family, a family who'd never met us before, kindly opened their homes. And it wasn't a typical American home with a basement. No, we were on the same floor as they were. The kids, they had two kids, a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and she was pregnant. So they were going to have another baby while we were there. But they welcomed us into their home. They're like, you know, listen, treat this house like your own. We love you. We're for you. If you want to eat with us, you can. If you don't want to eat with us. And so we ate with them every night. We were there around the table holding hands with the rest of them while we said grace together. We became a part of this family. And it was incredible. It was an incredible year. It changed our lives. Because the friendship that we were offered by them, the example we were offered by them, we were totally embraced into their family and were able to learn from them. They weren't even GC leaders. They were just regular people in the church and yet their love for the Lord and their love for one another and their family, we learned so much from their example. Why? Because they're willing to open their doors. They're willing to to actually let us in and have us into their lives. And throughout the year, we experienced similar hospitality all the time. They knew that we were both English, so everybody wanted us to have us over for tea. Please come over for tea. So they would arrive, and you'd have like 10 different teas, but they'd never have black tea. So you're like, oh, I like black tea. Oh, we don't have that. We don't have that. You're like, well, that's a problem. But everybody wanted you over for tea or coffee or whatever it be. And honestly, so week after week, we were blessed by so many people because they just opened the doors to us. They wanted to get to know us. They wanted to love on us. They wanted to give us friendship. And we grew so much in our faith through their example. It wasn't just a Sunday morning. The Sunday morning was the best day of the week. But it was Monday through Sunday when we're in people's homes. That's when we're learning things. It is the gift of hospitality and it changed our lives. It molded our lives to the people that we are today. Listen, I thank God for the way you likewise open up your homes to one another. There are many stories in this church of the gift of hospitality taking place. I thank God for that. I want that. And it is so important that we do. See, hospitality in a church life, it is the glue which keeps a family together. And it is the glue that stops family talk being theory, but in actual practice. If you want to keep theory family church... Close your doors to one another. If you want to actually be a church family, open your doors to one another. Because this is how you get it. It's the gift of hospitality. And so I thank God for the way you do this. But I think if the Apostle Peter was addressing us, he would look each one in our eyes and say to each and every one of you, if you have a house, you have an apartment, you have a dorm room, you have, you have something to lay your head, brilliant. Show hospitality to one another. Because that's why he gave you that home. That's why he gave you that gift so that you may open the doors and show people the love of Christ by welcoming them in. And the first people in are the people around you. Because it's the glue that will drive you together. It's the glue that will cultivate that love for one another that will then be able to cover a multitude of sins. And it's that love that will actually keep you together as a family for the glory of God. And he tells us in the rest of verse 9, and listen, do this without grumbling. 
He knows what we're like. He knows that when we get the vacuum cleaner out once again because we're having people over, we'll be tempted to go, I can't, I can't, I hate these people. I hate these people. I hate these people. He knows. He knows that there's going to be temptations in our hearts to tidy the house again, yet again, for the third time this week because we're having people over. He knows there'll be a temptation to grumble in our hearts. And so he prepares us for that, saying, listen, don't grumble. Do not grumble. And church, we, we shouldn't be grumbling. Why? Well, because first and foremost, he's talking there about the one another. He's saying, hey, listen, open your doors to other people in your church. Why? Well, because they're a brother or sister. They're somebody that Christ died for. He gave his life away for them. And they're a treasured possession to the Lord. They were chosen before the foundation of the earth. They've been declared holy by him. They're part of a royal priesthood. They're actually a child of God most high. What a privilege then for you to have them through your doors. And secondarily, be aware that as you're welcoming them, them, you you are emulating the Father himself who's done exactly the same thing who came after them on a wonderful rescue mission and then, ever, and then through the personal work of Jesus Christ opened his doors to them to welcome them in. I said, so church, I want to encourage you, whether you have a house or a dorm room or an apartment, it doesn't matter. Let each other in. It doesn't have to be a three-course meal. It can be a cheese sandwich. It doesn't even have to be a coffee. It can just be a chat. Just let people in because this is what the Lord wants us to do and it will be the very glue that in reality binds us together you know life is so much more fragile and finite than we care to think for all of us in the room you just don't know when your life might come to an end when your story may finish and in the same way we don't know when Jesus will return But what we do know is that Jesus is coming soon. So friends, I want to encourage you, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Don't just be pulled into the world, left, right, and center. Just stop. Stand firm. And make wise decisions that matter in light of eternity. Does it really matter what color bathtub you have in light of eternity? Probably not. Make wise decisions in what you do with your work and your money and your time and your house and all the different things of life. And in the same time, above all, love one another and do it earnestly. And then show people hospitality, all your brothers and sisters. Pull them into your home. You know, all this is only possible because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. In chapter 3, verse 18, we read, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. We're only having this conversation because of all that he has done for us. All of this started with him, and one day it will end with him when he comes back. So in between, let's live well for his glory, because Jesus is coming soon. Let's pray. Lord, what a wonderful reminder it is to know that you are coming soon and that we are, as a community of believers, 
as foreigners, as aliens, as sojourners, we are living in the end times. But you're coming soon. So Lord, would you help us to be ready for that great moment when you arrive? And when that great moment arrives, would you find us doing these things that you've called us to? Lord, would you help us to ensure that our priorities are what we are doing for your priorities? Would you help us to marry these two realities in our life? Lord, as we now close in song to worship you, Lord, I just want to recognize that all this is only possible because of what you have done on the cross. It's only possible in and through our lives because it is finished and we now have the gift of the Holy Spirit helping us in our lives day after day after day, infused by Him to do this in our lives. So Lord, as we sing, would we fix our eyes on You afresh and then would we prepare to leave today so that the worship may continue in and through our lives and would it all be for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.